Good morning, IBC. It's good to see you all here this morning. Um, funny thing happened uh, a few elder meetings ago. We were sitting there talking about how all the elders should have a sermon, you know, just prepared because in case something happens. And, and we all thought, yeah, it's a great idea. We should do that. So, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so on Thursday, Jeff's like, I don't know, guys. And we're like, oh, we'll pray for you. We'll make sure that you... Okay, so here we go. This is, <laughs> this is where we're at. Um, but like uh, Bob said, just uh, appreciate um, that, that IBC is discipling and growing and developing people who can just step up um, and do what we're called to do to keep the church uh, functioning. And so... Um, just appreciate all that goes on behind the scenes here and, um, and what that allows us to do. Uh, so this morning, um, we're going to be looking at God's grace to the sinner. Um, we're going we're gonna to stay in Jonah, kind of, <laughs> just to, to honor the theme and, and where, uh, where Jeff was headed. So um, he worked so hard on his... On this slide, I want to make sure that it gets used, and so um, so we'll be looking at that um, on Wednesday nights. Uh, I'm studying a Bible study on uh, the Book of Ephesians, and we're using a book written by Watchman Nee called "Sit, Walk, Stand," kind of as a commentary to help us develop the major concepts in Paul's letter. Uh, the first three chapters of Ephesians are doctrinal truths declared by God regarding his people, the church. Uh, Tim, Pastor Tim took us through a study several years ago. Um, and so these first three chapters uh, establish a lot of doctrine. Watchman Nee refers to this section using the word sit. The implication is that we need to sit in the truth of this work. There's a powerful illustration of this truth used by Jesus when he's in the home of Mary and Martha. Jesus is teaching his disciples in the home, and Mary's sitting at his feet, absorbed in the moment. Martha is running around, overwhelmed by the work that she feels is required to serve the group. So here's the story in Luke 10, starting at verse 38. It says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Martha was distracted by much serving. The reason I'm excited about this study in Ephesians is that I have to constantly remind myself of this truth. We should be constantly checking our hearts to see if we are distracted by much serving. What's the problem with becoming busy in much serving? We can miss the Lord's teaching. Martha recognized it was, I'm sorry, Mary recognized it was time to sit with Jesus. So what am I missing when I'm not sitting with Jesus? Does this mean that there's no work to be done, that we should all just sit with Jesus and 
Do no work? No. There's much work to be done. The harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. So how do we know when it's time to sit and when it's time to work? My hope is that we'll come to an understanding of this truth together because the consequences of getting it wrong are not good. Let's learn from the example of the Galatians so we don't have the same problems. Galatians 3, 1 through 3 says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing by faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Here's the problem. The work of the Spirit can be hijacked. We can try to do the work instead of the Spirit. When we do the work, we become the ones that determine what that work should accomplish and how it should look. We take the place of God, not on purpose and not necessarily intentionally, but as we elevate ourselves in the work of the Spirit, we become our own focus. I can't help but think of Peter here. He sees Jesus walking on the water. He wants to be with his master. So he calls out, Jesus, if it's you, command me, come to you on the water. And Peter does it. He walks to Jesus. Peter is in the will and the work of the Spirit until his focus is ever so slightly changed. Instead of the focus on Jesus, his focus moves to himself in the work. He drops like the stone that he is. You know, Peter means little stone. So I know Jeff fills the sermons with jokes. And so, so, you know, in honor of Jeff, who's not here, there's my one and only joke that I have. Okay. Uh, Here's another situation in in which this happens. In the book of Revelation, John is writing to the seven churches. He starts with the church at Ephesus. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Here, Ephesus has left its first love. How? They're still doing the work that they were always doing, right? It's full of the work that they're doing. But I think that in the same way Peter shifted his focus, the church at Ephesus also shifted their focus. They became the focus and the desire as they were doing the work. Unlike Peter, who immediately fell in the water screaming for Jesus, the shift that comes from busyness is subtle. Jesus shows them that they have replaced the love for Jesus with the love of themselves and the work. The work became the distraction that moved them away from the Lord. So how does this happen? How do we recognize when it's happening? I think the study of Jonah is going to provide us with the answers to those questions. 
What is one indicator that our attention is moving away from Jesus and onto the work? Uh, Jonah's attitude towards the Assyrians reveals his heart. <clears throat> God's grace to the sinner is a point of contention for the self-righteous. Let me say that again. God's grace that he gives to the sinners is a point of contention. It's an affront to the self-righteous. Ouch. How did Jonah become self-righteous? Well, it's the same way Martha became self-righteous. Martha wanted Jesus to rebuke Mary and get her back to work where the real Christians were working. Instead, Jesus offers grace. Jonah and the Israelites have been crying out to the Lord to deliver them from the evil Assyrians. And the Assyrians were evil. They were constantly inventing more ways to torture and strike fear into everyone around them. They were also raiding the people of God at the harvest time. They would come in after the harvest and terrorize, kill, and pillage, and then run off with the food and the spoils. Israel was tired of this routine and calling out for God to deliver them. God hears their cry and calls Jonah to deliver his people. God's deliverance came through his grace for the wicked. His grace for the sinner was what he was going to deliver his people from. Jonah did not like God's means of deliverance and refuses his call. Why is God's grace to the sinner an affront to the self-righteous? Because we've placed ourselves in position of work that the Spirit was doing. We left our position at the feet of Jesus and have made ourselves distracted with and in the work. O oh, foolish Galatians, how do we let this happen? And for some of us, how do we let this keep happening over and over and over again? Well, let's go back to the beginning. How was it that you were saved? Romans 4, 4 through 5 says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Over in Romans 5.8, says, For while we are still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one will dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What work did we do in our salvation? Nothing. Except provide the sin that needed to be removed by his blood. Salvation comes when we believe in the truth proclaimed by God. Our faith is in God's spoken word. Jesus is the propitiation, the accepted sacrifice for our sin. We accept the stated truth as fact by faith. Faith is the absolute dependence on God and his word. Faith is based on a factual reality. Your sins are forgiven. Every single one of them. God is clear in his word in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death 
in order that Jesus, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. God's word, what we just read, is stated fact. We must take this by faith. And then go and look in the mirror and come into agreement with God on this fact. Reckon yourself dead. So if we're dead to sin, then what is the source of the sin that we still experience? Most people try to dedicate the flesh to God as an offering on the altar. But God does not want your flesh on the altar. He wants it on the cross where it belongs. To say I'm a sinner is to reckon the flesh alive and to deny the truth of God. Let me say that again. To say I'm a sinner is to reckon the flesh alive and deny the truth of God. Romans 6.13, Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. What altar are we presenting on? Are we presenting on the altar of self, Satan's altar? Or are we presenting on God's? Sin expresses itself in our self-life. How do we recognize when that happens? The tendency for self-justification and self-reliance, we see this in the life of Jonah and in Martha and in the church at Ephesus. The focus had moved away from Jesus. How were you saved? Again, Romans 4, 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. How did you receive Christ? It was by faith. You didn't do any work for your own salvation. So how are we to walk in this Christian life? It also has to be by faith. Jesus is the one working. We are to rest in him. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. God-dependence only begins when self-dependence ends. This is the purpose of suffering and trials, to bring us to the end of ourselves. This is what Jesus was trying to tell the church at Ephesus, so that they could return to their first love. We cannot fulfill the call on our life to be a kingdom of priests 
until we understand how God works in our lives. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, God's perfect will is the focus here. It's not on us and what we do. We present ourselves, the flesh to be removed, nailed to the cross, and the spirit to be pruned. It looks like this. Presentation plus transformation equals revelation. We present ourselves. God transforms us through suffering and reveals his will to us. This is the process he uses to reveal his will to us. How do we realize the self-life? Sorry. How do we release the self-life? How do we get rid of it? It's to know that we're fully accepted by God. We carry around the flesh in case we need to love on it, in case it's not getting the attention it deserves. This is a lack of faith in what God has proclaimed because in him we're fully accepted in the beloved, in Christ. What is it about the flesh that causes us to get caught up in the busy work rather than resting in Jesus and allowing him to do the work? It's not fully realizing that God has fully accepted us. Ephesians 1, 5 and 6 says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now look at it in the King James Version. It says, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. This is the word of God. This is truth. We have been fully accepted and we're co-heirs with Christ. In faith, we must accept that as true. But just to make sure, we try to show God that we're worthy of this adoption. We try to deserve the gift by becoming deserving of it. The crazy thing is, is that we don't deserve it, and we never will. Because it was already given to us when we were undeserving of it in the first place. We must simply accept it and sit in the truth of it. Our work or performance will never justify this gift. So we as believers should stop trying to work for it or to prove our worth because we're unworthy. Only when we truly recognize this truth and accept it will we be able to freely and completely worship God. William R. Newell puts it this way. There being no cause in the creature why grace should be shown, the creature must be brought off from trying to give cause for God for his care. He is accepted in Christ, who is his standing. He's not on probation. As to his life past, it doesn't exist before God. He died at the cross, and Christ is his life. We are totally accepted in Christ. With this in mind, look at some of the following statements that Noel makes. 
To believe and to consent to be loved while unworthy is the great secret. To refuse to make resolutions and vows, for that is to trust in the flesh. To expect to be blessed, though realizing more and more your lack of worth. To hope to be better, hence acceptable, is to fail to see yourself in Christ only. There is no better than we can be. But yet many of us keep trying to be better. To be disappointed in yourself is to have believed in yourself. To be discouraged is unbelief as to God's purpose and plan of blessing for you. The lack of divine blessing, therefore, comes from unbelief, not from failure of devotion. To preach devotion first and blessing second is to reverse God's order and preach law, not grace. Our work and devotion to God must come from the love we have for who he is and what he's done. We must know what the work of Jesus on the cross has accomplished. Jesse Penn Lewis states it this way, If the difference between Christ dying for us and our dying with him has not been recognized, acknowledged, and applied, it may safely be affirmed that the self is still the dominating factor in the life. Watchman Nee in his book, The Normal Christian Life, says this, The blood can wash away my sins, but it cannot wash away my old man. I need to crucify. I need the cross to crucify me. As believers, we need to learn to remove ourselves, our flesh, from the work of Christianity. Why does this need to happen? Because whatever is of us is interfering with God's purpose and plan for our lives. God's purpose for you and for me is to mold and shape us into the image of Christ. Our flesh and our desires interfere with that. Why is it so difficult to let go of what's hindering us? Again, first, it's our lack of faith. We've heard the word of God today, declaring that we're accepted and complete in him, that we're a new creation and dead to sin. So why aren't we living that life? Again, our lack of faith is primary. The next problem is the passion of our heart. It's so encouraging to see the way God works. I was right here in this point of the sermon, getting ready for it. I had several things going on at the house. I needed to get up and move around after sitting on the couch for hours typing. So I went outside to water a bit. I put a sermon on, a podcast by Tim Keller. And he was preaching about this very thing. What an encouragement. And then again, coming this morning, um, the songs that Tim chose um, fit, fit right in. Why is verse that she read is one of the ones we'll be getting to. Just all these things God is putting together to confirm and, and affirm and encourage me. He said, Tim Keller says, until your heart's most fundamental worship is changed, you haven't changed. Until God's love is the praise of your life, you haven't really changed. So how do we make God's love the most fundamental thing? We have to understand our position in him. When we truly realize our position, then God's love becomes our primary source of praise. 
Miles Stanford, in his book, The Complete Green Letters, says this, All spiritual life and growth is based upon the principle of position. It can be summed up in one word, source. He goes on to explain, <clears throat> he goes on to explain the difference between our position and our condition. Our position, the source of our Christian life, is perfect. It is eternally established in the Father's presence. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. This is the eternal position in which every believer has been placed, whether he's aware of it or not. The Christian who comes to see his position in the Lord Jesus begins to experience the benefit of all that he is in him. His daily source is developed from the source of his eternal standing. He goes on to contrast our position with our condition. Our condition is what we're in, in our daily Christian walk, in which we develop from infancy to maturity. Although our position remains immutable, our condition is variable. Through this exercise of faith, through the exercise of faith, our eternal position, our source, affects our daily condition. But in no way does our condition affect that heavenly position. When we concentrate on our condition, we're not living by faith, but feelings and appearances. The inevitable result is that we become increasingly self-conscious and self-centered. Our prime responsibility is to pay attention to the Lord Jesus, to rest, to abide in him as our position. This is the foundation for spiritual growth. Not what we do, but what he has done we must abandon all reliance and dependence on our flesh. There are only two sources. We're either in Adam or we're in Christ. When we see and understand our position in Christ, we begin to experience the benefit of all that is in him. He's the source of our growth. Most Christians lose sight of their position when they focus on their current condition and their present circumstances. This is what Peter did on the water. That's what Martha did in her home. Our position in Christ is not affected by our condition. When we focus on our condition, we move away from Jesus, our first love, and we sink. Our position in Christ is not earthly. We belong to a kingdom not of this world. It's from this kingdom that we must get our source. When we understand this, our position in Christ our condition and circumstances will have less and less impact on our daily life and our ministry. This is what Paul's talking about in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you've been raised up with Christ in a new position, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things of the earth. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Those who concentrate on their condition are not living by faith. They're focusing on emotions, feelings, and circumstances. And this leads to ineffectiveness and failure, discouragement, and immaturity. Focusing on our position in Christ leads to victory in and over our daily condition. So how does spiritual growth work when we're resting and abiding in him? 
appropriation. Miles Stanford explains that appropriation, to appropriate what God has for us, does not necessarily mean to gain something new, but to set aside for our practical possession something that already belongs to us. What is it that already belongs to us? Why I read it earlier. According to Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. See, we don't understand. God's not saving anything up for us when we get to heaven. There's nothing more God can give. He's already given us everything he possesses in his son. When I believe the completeness of Christ for me and in me, I will not be looking for anything else outside of him for fulfillment. Spiritual growth can only come by appropriation. There are three types of man, according to Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians. The natural man, the carnal man, and the spiritual man. The natural man is lost. He cannot discern the things of God. But the other two types of man, the carnal man and the spiritual man, are represented by three levels of growth that John shares with us in 1 John chapter 2. Verses 12 to 14, he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. So what is this foundation of growth? The life within each of these individuals, the child, the young man, and the father, is the same life. So what is it that leads to growth and maturity? God's plan is to strip away everything we cling to that is of the flesh. And he does this for our own good, and yet we don't see it that way. Jesus went through the same process. When Jesus was here on earth, it's so amazing. Jesus went through the same process. Imagine, Jesus had to learn as a human to become humble. How did he do that? If we know how Jesus did it, then we can appreciate that same process. So look at Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. In Philippians 2, Paul writes in verses 5 through 8, Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So this is, this is the pathway to humility. This is what God wants for us, humility. How does, how does that happen? Suffering leads to obedience. And obedience is the source of humility. 
God's purpose in this, in suffering, is to make us aware of our needs, our true needs, so that we can ask him to meet our needs. Notice every time Jesus needed something, he asked God. He repeated over and over that he did not come to do his will or his work, but the work of the Father who sent him. He learned from his suffering to depend on God and ask God for what was needed. James puts it like this in chapter 1 of James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Notice he starts with trials. And he ends with maturity. How do trials lead to maturity? Because the trial strips away any dependence on our own strength and ability. We must cry out to God in the midst of our trial and suffering, just as Jesus did, so God can give us what we need. Appropriation is requesting from God what is already ours. He's given it to us in Jesus. We don't know what we need until our need is revealed and we cry out to God. See, most of us pray away the suffering before we get to that point. We don't allow suffering to do its full work in our life. When we cry out to God, then he hands us exactly what we need to accomplish what he's called us to. This is his grace, right? We know, we know the word grace, the Sunday school answers, God's unmerited favor. But there's a whole other aspect to grace, which is the power that God gives us to do the work he's called us to. But because we've called out to him to provide, it is not a work of the flesh. Our eyes have been focused on Jesus and we're walking on the water with him. We're in perfect unity with the love of our life and we're doing the work with him and through him. In Amos 3.3, it says, do, do two walk together unless they're in agreement? We have to come into agreement with God so that we can walk with him in the work he's called us to. In order to walk with Jesus and work with him, we must be in agreement. Anything we do in the flesh destroys this unity, so we must be stripped away of all flesh and plunged into total dependence on God so we can walk in unity with Jesus. With this truth in place and an understanding of how appropriation works, let's move into what the walk of faith produces. In 1 John, we saw the last category, a man was father. What is a father? Father is someone who has children. He's producing fruit. Let's look quickly at the progression to maturity that Peter gives us in 2 Peter chapter 1. It says, His divine power has been granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. 
For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to produce fruit, this is how it happens. The role of a father is to provide for the family through work. So let's look at this progression and see. Because what we're doing is we're building a personal life message. First is faith, the foundation of our salvation in Christ. Next is virtue. Virtue means separating yourself, turning from all that is not of God. It's recognizing that sin must be removed from one's life. It's the process of sanctification. God reveals the sin through trials and suffering. And we cry out to him to provide for us in Jesus. Next is knowledge. This is, this is a relational. This is a dedication to one person. In, in, um, in us, it's, it's exemplified in the relationship of marriage, husband and wife. It's yielding all ownership and authority to God. As in a marriage relationship, we being the bride become his possession. It's the recognition that surrender to God means giving up all of my personal rights, following him as a bondservant, one who voluntarily chooses to follow and not make decisions from our own personal pride. Temperance, self-discipline, using your time, talent, and energy to do God's will. What an example we see of that today, right? Everyone's stepping up. Tim, um, the other elders, stepping up and using their time and talent and energy to do God's will. And then patience. Patience is endurance built by suffering, long-suffering. This is God revealing our needs so that we can grow in him. Next comes godliness, maturity. You would think godliness would be the end of the list. We're not to the end yet. Becoming godly is only part of the way through. And it's responding to all who offend us with Christ-like attitude. We've become like Christ. But then the next two verses is building a life message in others. This is where fatherhood comes in. Brotherly kindness, becoming alert to others who hurt in the same fashion. This is lifting others up, becoming accountable to one another, encouraging and building up others, and then ultimately love when we try to build Christ-likeness in others. This is when you're producing sons and daughters in Christ. You're bearing the fruit of a life lived with Christ, totally dependent on him. We see that to grow into maturity, we need a progression of revelations of our need for Christ. With each new realization of need and subsequent crying out to him, he reveals new depths of himself to us. This new revelation elicits a greater degree of worship and praise for one, for the one who is everything to us. As our understanding of him grows, our love for him grows, and our response of praise and worship increases. If Jonah was secure in his position in Christ, in Messiah, he would have rejoiced in the opportunity to deliver uh, to deliver Israel, and to be a priest to the world like Israel was called to do. 
If Martha was secure in her position in Christ, she would have confidence that the food Jesus was sharing would have been sufficient for those gathered there. If Ephesus was secure in their position in Christ, they would still be working with their first love. If IBC is secure in our position in Christ, look out, Adebald. Here we come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, how amazing you are. I thank you, God, for all that you have done, knowing that it is all you and only you. God, I pray that you would just develop in us an understanding of our position in you, that there's no more that you can give. You've already given us everything, everything you possess. God, I pray that we would that we would change the way our pray, that we pray when suffering enters our life. That we wouldn't pray away the suffering, but we would pray for the endurance to let you do the work, to let you rid us of the flesh that's actually interfering with our relationship with you. God, I pray for your people to, uh, to have a heart to, uh, to recognize this, to let, let us see you in a new way. God, that we would respond with worship and praise of who you are. That our light would shine brighter. God, that we would be the witnesses that you called us to. And God, as we go out into Idlewild and places beyond, that we would be looking for you to pour your grace on the sinner and rejoice in the fact that you're saving people. God, I pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen.